Awesome, isn't it? Totally awesome. And I think about this child born 2,000 years ago in Bethlehem. When I was in Israel in 04, you weren't allowed to go in Bethlehem. Yasser Arafat had called for intifada. And that's sort of like a, uh, uh, I don't know what it is. I know that they'd throw stones and things at your car or bus or whatever you drove on. And it never made any sense. It was funny because we were going to try to get into Jericho too. And that was owned by the Palestinians. And they'd put all these casinos in there to uh, raise revenue. They'd gotten them all done. They were all ready because they knew all the Jews were going to get on their buses and come down and gamble their brains out. And they called for an intifada. And the Jews wouldn't go. And it collapsed. Brand new buildings were never used. You know what they call that? The wisdom of man. I think about us celebrating this child's birth, but today I would like to talk about this child's return. If you would turn with me in your Bibles to Revelations chapter 19, 11 through 16. I saw heaven open and behold a white horse. And he who sat on it was called faithful and true. And in righteousness he judge and wages war. His eyes are a flame of fire. And on his head are many diadems. He has a name written on him which no one knows except himself. He is clothed with a robe dipped in blood. His name is called Word of God. The armies which are in heaven clothed in fine linen, white and clean, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword, so that with it he may strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. And he treads the winepress of his fierce wrath of God of the Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Father, help us to hear this. Help us to understand this. If the day and the age that we are in is coming to the culmination of redemption. Father, please teach us. Father, as this, some people will look at this text as a horrifying. Father, let us understand the sinisterness of sin. And that, Father, if he is righteous, he must deal with it. And, Father, we know he is righteous. His cross bears witness. Father, we love you. Help us in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. This child returns. This child returns. The one in a manger in Bethlehem, he returns. And we could actually call him a full-grown man. But I think it's a little more than that. It's a little more than that. You know, I, uh, I told you guys that I like history. And I look, if I just take little blocks of it and I say, all right, I, I go back a hundred years, hundred years from now. We had the Industrial Revolution. Henry Ford invented the assembly line. He didn't invent the car. He invented the assembly line that could produce a whole bunch of cars. We have a march going on on scientific discovery that the world has never, ever, ever seen. 
We have amazing social reform. Amazing stuff. And yet, today, if I look back, we have seen two world wars. Who knows how many regional or civil wars there's been, or national wars. How many acts of terror, how much senseless acts of violence. And we have seen in the last eight years, ten years, an amazing collapse of moral value. So, to be optimistic right now, almost seems to be naive. So much for utopia. Scripture teaches things will become wonderfully better. Wonderfully better. After they become amazingly worse. You ever thought about that? Listen, I know people look around right now and say, well, how bad can it get? Way worse than you can ever dream. I believe that this is the beginning of it, but this ain't it. This is not it. And you know what? There's only one solution to those problems that plague this planet. This child's return. Last night I shared with you out of Revelations 5, the Lamb of God. This child was the Lamb of God. Who looked as if he had been slain. Which means that he bears on his body the scars of the crucifixion. But it is only under the Lamb of God, this child, his rule will there be peace instead of war. Only under his rule will there be justice instead of unjustice. Only under his rule will there be righteousness instead of wickedness. But let me tell you something about that. You and I cannot understand the fierceness of the opposition to that. They get mad at a nativity scene. Now think about that for a second. I was notified by the sheriff's department that ISIS has targeted churches in the United States to shed blood on Christmas. And I said, if they're looking for me, they couldn't find me if they had to. Well, that's the dumbest thing I ever heard. And you know what? Drive around Castle Rock right now and see how many churches are having services on Sunday. Okay? Listen, I ain't afraid of them. Dude, I've read this. You're still thinking about a baby in a manger. I'm thinking about somebody's going to come back and kick butt and take names. They will be in fierce opposition. I look at what people do just today if you mention it. Well, I don't like to hear the word Christmas. What would you prefer? Holiday. Well, that means holy days. Either one works for me. It is a holy day. You will see the wickedness of sinful man 
rise up with satanic and demonic power and they will increase themselves into tribulation. But as we looked last night, he will open up his wrath. There will be escalating human wickedness and then you have to put that human wickedness who's being powered by satanic forces, supernatural forces in the heavenlies and then you've got to put a side order of the wrath of a holy God on top of all of it. And you think it's bad right now? It's going to get worse and worse. And I, I just look at this as I look at this section and I think about this little child's all grown up. We're looking in Ephesians and we see the plan in eternity past that the Trinity made in the throne room of God. That's what we've been looking at. And now I see here, look, plan done. The little child, he's all grown up. And he is worthy to take the scroll. Amen. Amen. After he does that, between chapter 5 and chapter 19, there is calamity upon calamity upon calamity as he opens up the seals and the bowls and the trumpets. And it just is, uh, gives a whole new meaning to that flushing sound. But you know what is amazing? This section right here, just 11 through 16, is the completion of redemptive history. It's all over. The conqueror. The child conqueror. As in chapter 4, verse 1, heaven is opened so that John can enter. But unlike it, it was to let John in. This is to let Jesus out. A time that Jesus spoke of. You know it. It comes from Matthew's Gospel, chapter 24, verses 27 and following. For just as the lightning comes out of the east and flashes even to the west, so will the coming of the Son of Man be. Wherever the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. But immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. And the stars will fall from the sky and the, sower, the powers of heavens will be shaken. And the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky. Then all of the tribes of the earth will mourn. They will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky with power and great glory. And he will send forth his angels with a great trumpet. And they will gather together his elect from the four winds. From one end of the sky to the other. See, Jesus already told us this is coming. Remember, I want you to think about this. This is the lamb that was slain. All right? What a redneck sheep. I mean, have you ever thought about that? Because, see, we, we see in chapter 5, the lamb of God. Behold, he's worthy to open the lamb, hold the scrolls and open them. Now we see him. He's not fluffy and white and cute. See, there's not a lot of people talking about our Lord when it says He judges and wages war. People have missed that. 
Jesus is let loose. The lamb is now a conquering king. That cute, innocent little baby is no longer in his humiliation. As Zechariah 9, 9 says, Humble and mounted on a donkey, even on the colt of the foal of a donkey. Now he's on a white horse. White horses tradition was given to Roman generals when they had a victory. He may never ride on a white horse, but when he had a victory, they would give him this white horse and he would lead this parade. That's the picture that he's showing us here. It's a symbol of the absolute holy character of the writer in verse 12. It shows who he is. Verse 12 says, the crowns, many diadems. Verse 15, a sharp sword. Verse 15, a rod of iron. Verse 15, a wine press of judgment. Listen. This is the reality of this child. We like to think Mary and Joseph and little sheep herders and all the rest of it. That's great, but let me tell you something. That's in the past. The next time he comes, there ain't nobody asking, who's that? Christ has the victory over all of his enemies. Says he is called faithful and true. He is faithful to his promises. 2 Corinthians chapter 1 verse 20. He speaks truth. John 8, 45 and 46. And Titus 1 and 2. Too many today in the body of Christ like to pick and choose what teachings they wish to accept. You can't choose. He is faithful and true. You either take the whole spoon, or you get smacked in the head by the spoon. Because eventually you're going to have to say, well, there comes faithful and true. Uh-oh. He is faithful and true to his promises of wrath and judgment as faithful and true he was to grace and salvation. Okay, you know that? See, it's, I like grace and salvation. We like to do our little happy dance and say grace and salvation, grace and salvation. Amen, amen, amen. What about wrath and judgment? You cannot have grace and salvation without wrath and judgment or he is unrighteous. Because of this, in his righteousness, he says he judges. Faith and true in his righteousness, he judges and he wages war. Why? He is allowed to judge and wage war because he is faithful and true. See, his holy nature demands righteousness. And in that righteousness, it has to react to the sin of the world. Has to. If he does not react to the sin of the world, then he's not righteous. See, his first time when he was here, he was judged by the wicked. Pilate, 
Herod, Annas, Caiaphas. And they murdered an innocent man. But now he comes and he judges. But you know what he does that the other ones didn't do? He executes. Please understand that. Pilate didn't kill him. He had it done. When Jesus comes, guess what? He's doing it. He's doing it. He is no longer a suffering servant. He is now a warrior king. And he wages a war against his enemies. He is an executioner of all of the ungodly. You know, when it uses this phrase here, he wages war. You know, there's only one other time in the whole entire New Testament that that phrase is used. That he wages war. And it's a fascinating place. He wages war. Now think about that for a second. God waging war. Yow. Woo. That's sort of like being on the wrong side. He uses it in chapter 2 of the book of Revelations. Verse 16. You know who he wages war against? The church in Pergamum. He wages war against the church. Here he is waging war against hardened sinners. The church was called to change. Now that grace is gone. You know, I tell people that. I don't know where grace stops. I don't know when it stops. And you can play games with him all day long, but you ain't going to get rid of this text. You're going to have to look at this one of these days. I mean, you can hang out here and say, well, I'll just wait till after tribulation. Good for you. I'll go back to that. Professing to be wise, their foolish hearts are darkened. The church he called for change because his grace was still abundant. But you know what? This text here tells me at some point his patience is done. His patience is done. Now he comes in absolute righteousness and in perfect holiness. Listen, I have uh, spent some time studying heaven. Uh, I think heaven is, you know, there's, you, you can't really get your head around some of it. I mean, you're like, well, I mean, when, when I think that it's complete absence of sin, it kind of gives me a headache. And I don't know how that, what, I don't even know what that means. But I can tell you this. Heaven can have no peace with sin. Here I can see the limit of God's patience. This is the returning conqueror. John then gives us a description of his appearance. You know, I, I feel for some of these guys when I think about Ezekiel saw heaven and it was a wheel within a wheel and lights and flash. And you're like, you know, oh, dude, I don't know. They say, everybody says, what do you think that is? Hey, I don't know. But you know what? Ezekiel didn't know what it was either. And I mean, you look at John, he's trying to describe what? He's got this big green rainbow thing. There's four living creatures, 24 elders, and we got this going on. And there's a lamb over there. I don't know. 
And you know what? It would be the same with us. I mean, we're going to spend our, probably our first 2,000 years in heaven going, whoa. I mean, I'm still trying to figure out how do I get a clear floor that reflects the heavens in rainbow colors? I mean, all right, what does that mean? I don't know. Is it slick? But it describes the conqueror. It says his eyes, his eyes are a flame of fire. His eyes are a flame of fire. What it means by that, nothing escapes his notice. Hebrews chapter 4 verse 13. All things are open and laid bare the eyes of him with whom we have to do. You ain't getting away from it. You ain't getting away from it. Now listen, I want you to think about this because it's, it's a flaming fire and he's looking at him and you look at it and you're like, he's, it's all laid bare. You ain't hiding nothing. These are the same eyes of tenderness that he would gather the little children in the countryside. It's the same eyes of compassion that he saw the people struggle who did not have a shepherd. It's the same eyes of forgiveness that looked upon Peter and restored him. It's the same eyes that wept over unrepentant Jerusalem. It's the same eyes of sorrow over suffering death of a sin-cursed world. Now we see flashing fire of judgment. But let me tell you something. Same eyes. Same eyes. It says, on his head are many diadems, crowns. It's common practice during this time. That when a king defeated another king, he took his crown. David did it on a regular basis. Uh, he would cut their heads off, take their crowns, and off he'd go with it. On his head are many crowns. Collected all of the rulers, all of their crowns. You know what it shows? He alone is sovereign ruler. Down there in verse 16, he is king of kings. And it's funny because uh, <laughs> it says he has a name written on him and no one knows except him. And I was amazed at the number of people who speculated that they knew what it meant. And I mean, I'm talking fundamental guys who are smart and I'm sitting there going... Well, why would you even struggle with that? It says no one knows the name but him. And you ain't him. Then he is clothed in a robe, white linen robe, but it's dipped in blood. Listen, I've read some authors who try to tell me that this is the remnants of the cross. And uh, God bless them, but they're wrong. Amen. They are. Amen. Okay? This blood is not of the cross. This is a picture of judgment. The cross is of redemption. 
The blood on this robe has got nothing to do with redemption. Okay? And just in case you think it's my opinion, (laughs) I'll give you something to think about. Isaiah 63, 1 through 6. Who is this that comes from Edom with garments of glowing colors of Rosa? This one who's is majestic in his apparel, marching in the greatness of his strength. It is I who speak in righteousness, mighty to save. Why is your apparel red and your garments like one who treads in the wine press? I have trodden the wine trough alone and all of the peoples there has no man with me. I also trod them in my anger. I trampled them in my wrath. And their lifeblood is sprinkled on my garments. And I stained all of my raiment. For the day of my vengeance was in my heart. And my year of redemption has come. I looked and there was no one to help. And I was astonished. There was no one to uphold. So I, my own arm, brought salvation to me. And my wrath upheld me. I trod down the peoples in my anger. And make them drunk in my wrath. And I pour out their lifeblood on the earth. I wonder who he's talking about there. I can tell you what he's talking about. You're not going to like it. Okay, and I know a whole bunch of people ain't going to like it. Because he's referring strictly to Edom. Okay, the line of Esau. You know these people. They call them Palestinians today. Okay. And I think he's kind of got some kind of an attitude about them. What do you think? Maybe. And I mean, we look at all the stuff that's going on. And, you know, we're, we're blowing each other up. And we're doing this and we're doing that. And we deserve this and we deserve that. And I'm like, you ain't read that. You should read that. You might want to change your view a little bit. Then people will say, well, I don't agree with that because why would his robe be blood splattered before the battle? And it makes me want to shake my head like this. This is not his first battle, people. Please understand that. You don't think he ain't taking vengeance out right now? But I can tell you this. Here in Revelations, it's his last one. It's his last one. And his last one, his robe will be blood-stained as never before because he's going to tread out the wine press of his wrath, verse 15. And then he told me what his name is in case you're trying to figure it out. Because remember, he had a name that only he knows. But he says, but his name is what? The Word of God. There is no mistake who this is. He is the revelation of God. The word revelation that we call this book is apocalypsis. Okay, there's two words that are very similar. Parousia is one, and then one is apocalypsis. Okay, the word that we translate revelation here is apocalypsis. All right, 
Perusia has the same meaning, except you're expecting it. Apocalypse, you're not. Still doesn't mean it won't happen. You're just not expecting it. Perusia, I'm expecting it. All right? I see this coming. It's in the future, and I'm waiting for it. Apocalypsis says, what was that? He is the revelation of God. Hebrews chapter 1 verse 3. The radiance of His glory and the exact representation of His nature. I want to look at verse 14. The army of the conqueror. The armies which are in heaven clothed in fine linen, white and clean, were following on white horses. He ain't coming alone. the armies of heaven I look at this if I look at it from a military mindset I would say okay he's got four divisions four divisions of glorified troops earlier in chapter 19 verses 7 and 8 let us rejoice and be glad and give glory to him for the marriage of the lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. It is given to her to clothe herself in fine linens, bright and clean for the fine linen of righteous acts of the saints. One division, you know what it is? The body of Christ, the church. Okay? Second division will be the tribulation believers. Those who died during the seven years of tribulation. People say, well, I thought the church was raptured. It is. But the gospel is still going to be preached during that seven years of calamity. And people will come to salvation during that time. And guess what? They will be martyred as soon as they believe. So they will be the second division. Third division. Daniel chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. Old Testament saints. We'll be hanging like with Moses, Samuel. And then Matthew 25, verse 31. Fourth division. The holy angels. Okay, now people ask me about, well, what about these white horses? What about them? You got to understand something. John's trying to explain something that you and I ain't got a handle on. I don't know what they are. I, I remember I had a time there with my motorcycle. I kept, had this problem of running out of gas it, it didn't have a gas gauge on it and you put x number of gallons in it and you set the odometer and you figure you get about 200 miles out of it and sometimes if you forgot to set that odometer <laughs> oh, where am i at <laughs> and then one day it goes and uh, i'd have to make phone calls to can you bring me a gallon of gas a teaspoon of gas would work and so i'd made the comment one time that, uh, I'm going to ride a motorcycle out of heaven in uh, some wise anyway. said, you'll run out of gas before you get back. <laughs> I didn't think that was very funny. I'm, why you guys are laughing at it? I don't know what the white horses are other than white horses. I don't know. But I know when you get on one, you're going to know it. 
we will be on the same steeds, mode of transportation that the Lord is on. But there is one difference between this four-division army than the person of Jesus Christ. Unlike the Lord, the heavenly army is unarmed. You know what that means? He don't need us. He alone will destroy his enemies. He alone is holy and righteous. The saints are not coming to fight with Christ. Okay? You have to kind of go a little farther in the book and you find this out. In chapter 20, verses 4 to 6. Then I saw the thrones and they sat on them and the judgment was given to them. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of the testimony of Jesus Christ and because of the word of God. Those who were not worshipped, had not worshipped the beast or his image and had not received the mark on their forehead and on their hand. And they came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until a thousand years was completed. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who has a part in the first resurrection. Over these, the second death has no power. But they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with him for a thousand years. That's why we come. We come back here. This is what they call the millennial kingdom. Okay, people ask me about it. Yeah, it's a real kingdom. Thousand year own. It's right here. You're not going to believe this. There are actually human survivors that come out of the tribulation. There will be. And you know what? Which brings me to the next part. I want to show you the rule of the conqueror. And John had first noted that he had seen a sword earlier in his vision in chapter 1, verse 16. It was used to defend the church. Here, it is used as judgment. Flaming eyes, sharp sword. Dealing death to the kings and death to his enemies. From his mouth is deadly power. You know, I, I think about this young child that we, we think about being born in a manger and all the rest of it and his life for 33 years here on the planet. How much time he spoke to comfort. Now when he speaks, it's to destroy. See, he alone wields the sword. He slays the wicked. He strikes the nations down. That's what's going on in the millennial kingdom. His elect, both the Gentile and the Israeli, will be preserved during the tribulation. Seven years of horror and some will survive. They will be mortal. They will walk into the millennial kingdom, mortal. They will be able to have children. They'll be mortal. How's come they can live for a thousand years? Really? Sin is dealt with. What is our biggest problem? Sin. And yet, in the millennial kingdom, the wicked will be slaughtered instantly. 
instantly. It will even include those who gather for the battle of Armageddon. None will escape. I remember standing on the hill above Megiddo and looking down at the valley and thought, man, what a bloodbath. (laughs) The Israeli army has an air base right in the middle of it. It's a nice place if you wanted to slaughter a whole bunch of people really fast. Because it's shaped like a funnel. The rest of the world's unredeemed will be judged and executed. This is given to us by the Lord Jesus Christ, again back in Matthew chapter 25, 31 to 46. Then the Son of Man comes in His glory and all the angels with Him, and He will sit on His glorious throne. All of the nations will be gathered before Him. He will separate them one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He will put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom and prepare for you for the foundations of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you invited me in. Naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord... When did we see you hungry and feed you and or thirsty and give you something to drink? And then when we see you as a stranger and invite you in and clothe you when you were naked? When did we see you sick or in prison or come to you? And the king answered and said to them, Truly, I say to you, to the extent that you did these to the brothers of mine, even the least of them, you did this to me. And then he will also say to those on his left, Depart. Accursed ones into eternal fire, which has been prepared for the uh, the devil and his angels. For I was hungry and you gave me nothing. I was thirsty and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger and you did not invite me in. I was naked and you did not clothe me. A sick and is in prison and you did not visit me. And they themselves will answer the Lord. When did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked? Are sick or in a prison and did not take care of you. And he will say, and he will answer them, Truly I say to you, to the extent that you did not do this to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. Go away to eternal punishment, but righteous into eternal life. That's what he's given us right there, brothers and sisters. This is following his return. This is the last stroke of death. This is that one word that you don't want to ever be involved with. Day of the Lord. You don't want no part of that. This will begin the millennial kingdom. Thousand year rule here on the planet. He will rule with a rod of iron and he will swiftly judge sin instantaneously. All, and here's the thing, you're going to have these people who are mortal, all will remember and know what happened and how they got there. They will conform to his law or face immediate judgment. The rod of iron is that 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 he uses to break the pottery. 
from Isaiah 63, 1-3 and Joel 3, 12-14. He will crush the pottery. Seen earlier in Revelations in chapter 2, verses 26-27. But then he concludes with this last little view that we get a shot at. He treads the winepress of his fierce wrath of God, the Almighty. I grew up with cousins and uncles and grandparents who uh, crushed apples for apple cider and grapes for uh, grape juice and wine. And uh, you would... Just throw this stuff in there, then you start turning this big gear, had a screw on it, and you spin it down. And as it got lower and lower, the bar across the top got longer and longer because you need a little more leverage. Okay? And you just you crank it down, and you watch the juice come out, and you crank it down, and you watch the juice come out, and you crank it down, and you watch the juice come out. And whether it was the apple juice or whether it was grapes, then you got the privilege of uncranking this thing and looking in the middle. <laughs> yeah, what a mess. That's what I think of when I see this. There's no escape. There's not like a grape that says, well, I hid over here in the corner and I didn't get squashed. That's where the blood comes to on his robe. He will crush the enemy. And the red will splatter on his robe. This little baby in a manger. And then it says, on his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written. King of kings and Lord of lords. Three names given to the Lord Jesus Christ in this text. One inexpressible. Only he knows. That's his deity. He's called the Word. That's His incarnation. He's called King. That is His eternal kingdom. Same little baby in a manger. Eyes are tender. I told you about my grandson. And you just look into his eyes. If you look into a person's eyes, you can tell more about them than ever usually talking to them. And I think about looking into my little grandson's eyes and how sweet and how inquisitive they are. He wants to see something all the time. He's wanting to pick it up. He's trying to gather in as much information to his eyes as he can. And then I think about him with seven eyes. Fiery eyes. With the same tenderness of a child. Same compassion as a father. And a righteous judge. That's Christmas, people. That is what Christmas is all about. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that in the near future you shall return. Redeem your people. Father, deal with sin once and for all. And may it set up a world peace that uh, I can't even really grasp it right now. I look at the chaos in our planet and how it must grieve you. And yet, Father, for a time such as this, 
each and every one of us here are to proclaim you, either in words or in actions. But Father, help us. Help us to understand that you are faithful and true. But Father, you are inexpressible in your power. You are the Word incarnate. And Father, please let us grasp and take comfort in that you are the King of kings and Lord of lords. Help us, my Lord. We praise you. We thank you for this day, Father, and uh, keep us safe as we, Father, continue to serve you with every fiber of our being. We love you. In Christ's name, amen.